On the other hand, the revelation, or Christ coming at the end of the tribulation period, is said to be for the Jews as well as for the Gentile nations. According to the dispensationalists, the church did not even exist during Old Testament times. The question arises, therefore, how can those Jews, long after their death, be incorporated into the church to which they never belonged? Another inconsistency appears in connection with the removal of the church at that particular time. In Revelation 21 verse 9, the church is declared to be the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Dispensationalists say that the removal of the church at the time of the rapture is for the purpose of being united with Christ in the wedding of the Lamb. Yet they admit that the number of the saved will not be complete until the end of the millennium. Hence the wedding occurs before the bride is complete. Some members of the church evidently will miss their own wedding. Surely this is a strange inconsistency. It is also inconsistent with a further element of their theory which, as we shall see later, holds that in the eternal kingdom the church saints are to constitute a heavenly people, while Israel constitutes an earthly people, the two to be kept permanently separate and distinct. Reese insists that the dispensationalists wrecked their system by placing the resurrection of the Old Testament saints at the time of the rapture. Three terms are used in scripture with reference to Christ's return. They are the coming, perusia, the appearing, epiphany, and the revelation, apocalypse. See particularly John 14, 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, 1 Thessalonians 3, 13, and chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, Jude 14, Acts 1, verse 11, Matthew 16:27 and chapter 24 verse 30 Mark 8:38 Luke 9:26 and 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 We believe that these three terms are used interchangeably as suits the convenience of the writers and that they have essentially the same meaning Historic premillennialists too take these as synonyms or at least as closely related terms Dispensationalists, however, take the coming as referring to the rapture, which they place seven years before the appearing or the revelation, and as being for the church only. But it is hard to get these distinctions from the above references. It is to be noted particularly concerning Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 17, which is the primary passage cited by dispensationalists as the basis for their doctrine, that one... The term rapture is not a scripture word at all, but rather is a term invented to express an idea that has become prominent in millennial discussions. 2. The teaching concerning the rapture of believers was not first given here by Paul as a new revelation, but by Christ himself some twenty years earlier when he said, I will come again and will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. John 14, verse 3. Number 3. The new revelation given by Paul did not have to do directly with the rapture at all, but was given to reassure those who had lost loved ones and who were afraid that those would not be able to share the glory of the Lord's return. It also informed them that the saints who survive until the Lord's coming will have no precedence or advantage whatever over the saints who have died.
And number four, the real message of comfort to be found in Paul's words is not that there is to be a rapture, but that at the Lord's coming, all the saints, whether living or dead, will live together with the Lord and be forever with Him. Dr. Alice, an acknowledged authority in the field of linguistics, has given the following analysis of the terms used in connection with the Lord's return, showing that the distinctions made by dispensationalists are not tenable. A. Coming, perusia, is used by Paul fourteen times, eight of which refer to the coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 15, which speaks of the catching up of believers, clearly refers to the rapture. Likewise, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1, which speaks of our gathering together with Him. On the other hand, 1 Thessalonians 3.13 speaks of the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. If saints means or includes the church, as all dispensationalists believe, this verse speaks quite as plainly of the appearing. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, which clearly refers to the appearing, since it speaks of the slaying of Antichrist, the expression used is the manifestation, or brightness, epiphany, of his coming, perusia. Consequently, we must recognize that Paul uses coming both of the rapture and of the appearing, and even combines the two expressions in Second Thessalonians 2 verse 8 to describe what is apparently one and the same event. B. Revelation Apocalypse is used 13 times by Paul. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7, it is used of the rapture. It is what the Christians wait for. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7, the reference is as plainly to the appearing, the coming in glory. C. Appearing, epiphany. This word is used only by Paul. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 14, the reference to the rapture seems unmistakable. In 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 and 8, the allusions to judgment, as in Titus 2.13, to glory, favor the reference to the appearing. Paul uses all three words, and he uses them ambiguously. Particularly clear is the fact that he uses perusia both of the rapture and of the appearing. How is this to be explained if he had been told by the Lord that there was an important difference between these two events? The question which confronts us is this. If the distinction between the rapture and the appearing is of as great moment as dispensationalists assert, how are we to explain Paul's failure to distinguish clearly between them? And the failure of other writers, Peter, James, and John, to do the same. Paul was a logician. He was able to draw sharp distinctions. If he had wanted or regarded it important to distinguish between these events, he could have done so very easily. Why did he use language which dispensationalists must admit to be confusing? Feinberg recently made the following surprising statement regarding the three words we have been discussing. We conclude then that from a study of the Greek words themselves, the distinction between the coming of the Lord for His saints and with His saints is not to be gleaned. A quote in Premillennialism or Amillennialism, page 207. Such an admission raises the question whether the distinction itself is valid. If the distinction is of importance, Paul's ambiguous language is, we may say it reverently, inexcusable. 
If the distinction is negligible, accuracy of statement would be quite unnecessary. We conclude, therefore, that the language of the New Testament, and especially of Paul, not merely fails to prove the distinction insisted on by the dispensationalists, but rather by its very ambiguity indicates clearly and unmistakably that no such distinction exists. A quote in Prophecy in the Church, page 181 to 185. If Christians are to be removed from the earth before the epiphany, that is, before the appearing or revelation of Christ, then the scriptures cannot anywhere state or imply that they are to remain on the earth until the appearing or the revelation. If so much as one passage can be pointed out which teaches that believers are to remain on the earth until the epiphany, the whole argument for a secret rapture is disproved and the dispensational system falls with it that the rapture and the revelation are contemporaneous events, or nearly so, and that Christ at his coming will be visible to all people in all his power and glory, is indicated in numerous passages. Witness particularly the following. 1 Timothy 6, verses 13 and 14. I charge thee that thou keep the commandment without spot, without reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But how can Christians keep the commandment until the appearing if they are raptured seven years before the appearing? The appearing of Christ is here set forth as the event which terminates the service of Christians on earth. Hence they cannot be raptured before that time. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8 Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day and not to me only, but also to all them that have loved his appearing. Here Paul sets his hope on the glorious appearing, not on a dispensational rapture which occurs seven years before the appearing of Christ, and that because of the reward that the righteous judge shall give him at that time. His teaching is the same as that of Christ, who said, Thou shalt be recompensed in the resurrection of the just. Luke 14, 14 the glorious appearing of Christ, the resurrection of the saints, and the rewarding of the saints all occur at the same time. Titus 2 verse 13 Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Here the blessed hope which is the coming of Christ and the appearing are the same. In the original Greek the two substantives, hope and appearing, are closely united with the common article. They are not two separate events, as if it read, look for the blessed hope and the appearing, but simply looking for the blessed hope and appearing. The one explains the other. The blessed hope of Christians is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5 verse 4 And when the chief shepherd shall be manifested, ye shall receive the crown of glory that fadeth not away. Here Peter says that the crowning and rewarding of the saints takes place at the manifestation, which is the same as the coming of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7 Waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye be unreprovable in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here the event that Christians are encouraged to wait for is not the secret rapture, but the revelation of Christ. 
1 Peter 1 verse 13 Wherefore, girding up the loins of your mind, be sober, and set your hope perfectly on the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4 verse 13 Insomuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, rejoice, that at the revelation of his glory also ye may rejoice with exceeding joy. 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 through 10 And to you that are afflicted rest with us at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire, rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus, who shall suffer punishment, even eternal destruction from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all them that believed. Here Christians are said to receive relief from suffering and tribulation at the time the Lord comes with his angels in flaming fire and for judgment on evildoers. Concerning this passage, Rev. William J. Grier says, We may notice that when the Savior comes for the deliverance of his troubled saints, he comes in flaming fire. No secret rapture here. But it is even more important still to notice how the reward of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked are interwoven with each other as to time, and made to follow both of them immediately on the coming of the Lord. Surely this passage should make perfectly clear that there is no secret rapture to be followed by an interval of seven years by an open revelation of the Lord and His glory to the world. Surely it is perfectly clear also that since the coming of the Lord brings upon the wicked eternal destruction away from the face of the Lord, there will be no wicked who will survive His coming to be ruled over in a millennium to follow. But there must be wicked people surviving according to the premillennial scheme. A quote from the momentous event, page 55. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 4, which follows immediately after the passage from which dispensationalists think to derive their doctrine of a secret rapture, chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, Paul's words make it clear that he is not talking about a seven-year rapture at all, but rather the day of the Lord, or judgment day. These verses read, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that ought be written you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. When they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall in no wise escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. This passage shows that instead of the righteous being taken away before the judgment day, they are here right up until the time the wicked receive their punishment, at which time the righteous receive their reward. Concerning this passage, Greer says, Paul associates the second coming with the resurrection and the ensuing glory of the saints and the sudden destruction of the wicked. Without the shadow of a doubt, that day has its reference to both parties. Believers are to look for it, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 through 10, for then they shall obtain salvation in all its fullness, verse 9. Then they shall live together with him, verse 10. While that 
same day will bring the false security of unbelievers to an end in their sudden destruction. A quote from the momentous event, page 54. Surely Paul would not have written these words if he had been looking for a secret rapture. There is nothing here to indicate that Christians are to be raptured away seven years before the day of judgment. Rather, they are to receive relief from tribulation and suffering at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire, rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel. From these numerous references, it should be clear to everyone that what is called the appearing or the revelation of Christ must coincide with his coming at the resurrection. The coming, the appearing, and the revelation of Christ are but different aspects of the same event. Hence we conclude that nowhere in Scripture does it teach a secret or pre-tribulation rapture. Christ's coming for the saints and his coming with the saints are the one and the same event and take place at the same time. Once this is clearly seen, the dispensational scheme falls away like a house of cards. For when their doctrine of a secret rapture is shown to be contrary to Scripture, various other doctrines of their system are also left without support. A further valuable contribution to our study of the use of words is made by H. C. Heffron. He says, Our request for the answer to the events yet to be, leads us back to the 24th chapter of Matthew. The question in verse 3 engages our attention. Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? The word end is translated from the Greek word centelia, meaning full end. According to Young's analytical concordance, centelia is used only six times in the New Testament. It always designates the judgment day, that is, the end of the world. Before his ascension, Jesus gave his disciples the well-known command, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the centelia, full end of the world. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 Jesus would not have commanded his church to preach the gospel until the judgment day, centelia, if the rapture preceded the event, nor if the final phase of evangelizing the world were to be given to the Jews before the final end. The fact is that Jesus did not provide any channel for disseminating the gospel other than the church. When that task is done, the gospel preached to all the world, then the end comes. But the church must be in the world till the full end of the age in order for Christ to be with us as long as he promised. Christ gives a detailed account of the sequence of events at the end of the age in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 52. This passage is too long to quote in full, but it should be carefully studied. In Matthew 13:39, we read, The enemy that sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the centilia, full end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Verse 40. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the centilia, full end of the world. The angel shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. The use of the Greek word centilia in each of these verses absolutely precludes the possibility of the righteous being taken out of the world before the full end of the age. 
both the righteous and the wicked grow together until the end of the age. A quote from The Sign of His Coming, page 35. We note that the Greek word apocalypsis, revelation, carries with it the idea of suddenness and unexpectedness, as though a curtain were withdrawn and the Lord stood revealed. But there would be nothing sudden or unexpected about it if a seven-year warning of its approach had been given by such a tremendously startling event as the rapture. Greer has well said, There could be no such surprise about the second advent if the premillenarian scheme were true. For once the day of Christ, the rapture came, the seven-year period of Antichrist and the Great Tribulation would follow. The seven-year period once begun would revolve its course till its close when the day of the Lord or the Revelation would follow. But the good Greek students tell us that the word Revelation, Apocalypsis, has intimately associated with it the very idea of suddenness and unexpectedness. Yet according to the ordinary premillennial scheme, it can neither be sudden nor expected. A quote from the momentous event, page 45. The notion that the resurrection of the righteous is to occur a thousand years before the end of the world is contradicted by Jesus, who, on four different occasions, said that he would raise up those who believe in him at the last day. John 6, verses 39, 40, 44, and 54. Clearly, there can be no other days after the last day. The parables of our Lord also teach that the final separation comes at the end of the world, not at a seven-year rapture preceding the millennium. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, we are told that these grow together until the time of harvest, and that the Lord of the harvest will then say to the reapers, Gather up first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Matthew 13:30. The dispensational doctrine, however, says that seven years before the time of harvest, the wheat portion of the crop is first to be gathered out, leaving only the tares. Again in the parable of the dragnet, we are told that the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was filled they drew up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but the bad they cast away. So shall it be in the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the righteous and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50. In these parables, the separation comes in the end of the world, not a thousand years before the end, as all kinds of premillennialism teach. And insofar as there is a difference in time, the wicked are taken out from among the righteous, not the righteous from among the wicked. If the dispensational theory were true, namely that the church is raptured out of the world, there would be left only the tares. There is not a word in the epistles of Paul to indicate that the coming of Christ shall be a secret affair. On the other hand, he speaks of the coming as a revelation. Waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7. In writing to the Thessalonians, he describes it as the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire, rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
who shall suffer punishment, even eternal destruction from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all them that believed. Second Thessalonians 1, verses 7-10 Surely by no stretch of the imagination can this coming be secret. Rather, it is described as occurring in flaming fire, abundantly visible to all the world, through which he renders vengeance to the wicked at the same time that he is glorified in his saints and marveled at by all them that believe. And where is there anything to indicate that the rapture is silent or secret or unseen? Paul says that his coming occurs at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 52 And that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven and with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 Surely there is nothing secret about a rapture that is heralded by a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God, and which is seen by every eye. How could it be stated more clearly that all men everywhere are to see and hear that event? Surely this latter verse is a strange one on which to found a doctrine of a secret rapture. It would seem rather to be just about the noisiest verse in the entire Bible. Nor does either of these verses say that the saints shall remain where they meet with the Lord in the sky for a period of seven years. That idea is without the slightest support anywhere in Scripture. Alexander Reese well says, The suggestion of Darby backed by vigorous efforts of Kelly and others, to prove from this magnificent passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that a secret coming of resurrection and a secret rapture are supported, followed by the rise and reign of Antichrist, is among the sorriest in the whole history of freak exegesis. A quote from The Approaching Advent of Christ, page 146. It may be pointed out further concerning the second coming which dispensationalists divide into two parts, that some attempt is made to preserve at least a semblance of unity by referring to these as two different phases of the same coming. But the fact remains that dispensationalists really do set forth two different comings, separated in time by a period of seven years, each having its own concomitants, each serving a different purpose and bearing a different name the first being known as the rapture and relating to the church saints only, while the second is known as the revelation and has reference to the entire world. These comings clearly are not the same. We are prompted to say that those who hold the rapture to be the next event on the prophetic calendar and to look for it to occur at any moment are in this regard like those Jews in Christ's day who, we are told, Suppose that the kingdom of God was immediately to appear. Luke 19, verse 11. To offset that view, Christ gave the parable of the pounds, in which a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. By that parable he taught that his coming in glory was still some considerable distance in the future, perhaps even in the remote future. We may point out further that the Apostle Paul could not have looked for the Lord's return any moment, for he had been assigned a great task that would in any event require much time, perhaps all of his natural life. For God had said to him, I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. 
Acts 22, verse 21. Nor could the Apostle Peter have understood the command to watch for the Lord's coming to mean that he was to expect it momentarily. For the Lord had told him that he was to live to old age and die by martyrdom. John 21, verses 18 and 19. The doctrine of an any-moment rapture, and particularly that of a secret rapture, lends itself to the dramatic and the sensational. In treating this subject on which even its proponents can find but little revealed in Scripture, the human mind can give full rein to its imaginative powers. The event is supposed to occur in absolute secrecy. Consternation and confusion reign among those who are left behind when they wake up to discover that all the Christians have suddenly vanished. Bewildering and terrifying scenes follow as families are separated and all the best neighbors are gone. They search everywhere but cannot find them. Industries and utilities are immobilized. Hearts are filled with fear and dread. One dispensationalist describes it this way. One of these days, as sure as this is the word of God, those who have pled with you, who have warned you, who have prayed for you will be missing. The preacher will be gone, mother will be gone, wife will be gone, and baby's crib will be found empty. Oh, what an awakening that is going to be. Imagine getting up some morning and your wife is not there, and you call for her, but there is no answer. You go downstairs, but she's not there. You call upstairs to daughter asking where mother is, but no answer from daughter. Daughter, too, is gone. You ring the police, but the line is busy. Hundreds and thousands are calling up, jamming the telephone lines. You rush out of doors and bump into the pal of last night's wild party. He is white as a sheet. He is out of breath and he stammers a few words and bawls out, My wife is gone. My brother is gone and I don't know where they are. Down the street runs a woman shrieking at the top of her voice, Someone has kidnapped my baby. And in a moment the streets are full of people weeping, crying, and howling over the disappearance of loved ones. What has happened? The Lord has come like a thief in the night. He has quietly stolen away those who trusted him like Enoch and no one is left behind to warn you any more to pray or show you the way. From Rev. Richard W. DeHaan, The Radio Bible Class, November 1954. Another says, When Christ comes, the invisible church will be caught up out of the midst of the visible. It will be a secret rapture, quiet, noiseless, sudden as the step of a thief in the night. All that the world will know will be that multitudes at once have gone, the extras will advertise in the streets universal consternation, remarkable disappearances. Such and such ministers are missing. Such and such businessmen are not to be found. Such and such women of high and low position have left their places vacant. The next Sunday the fashionable churches will show certain of their seats empty. In smaller, more devout churches, the majority will be gone, only a remnant left. For some days nothing else can be talked about. Excitement will be tremendous. Then reaction will set in. Philosophers and rationalistic ministers will begin to account for the phenomena on scientific principles. The world will resume its occupations. Gradually the breaches in the churches will be closed up. Only a few here and there will wake up and say, It's too late. I am left out. My godly relatives have gone. The Spirit of God has departed. The reign of evil has begun, 
we have slept away our day of grace. From Dr. George Sales Bishop in the Doctrines of Grace, page 341. It is important that we realize how little emphasis is placed on the doctrine of the rapture in Scripture. Paul makes but a passing reference to it in the two passages that we have quoted with no mention at all of the seven-year feature which the dispensationalists stress so strongly and on which they base so much of their distinctive doctrine. Scripture presents the rapture as but a fleeting event, in a sense only the mechanical means by which we are introduced into the blessed hope and places the emphasis on the heavenly glory that shall follow. Certainly there is no proof that the church will remain in the air above the earth for seven years or for any other length of time. The words, So shall we ever be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, indicate that when the saints are caught up, they enter immediately into the eternal heavenly state. Dispensationalists have made a fetish of that which is only an incident in the coming of Christ. Fortunately, many of them have abandoned the theory when they realized how destitute of scriptural support it really was and how prone to encourage other errors regarding the second coming. Chapter 4, page 175, The Great Tribulation In the writings of John N. Darby, four passages are cited as teaching an unequal tribulation through which, he says, the Jews, Gentiles, and the professing church will pass but from which the true church will be exempt. These are Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Alas, for the day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Daniel 12, verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Matthew 24, verse 21 For then shall be great tribulation, such as hath not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, nor ever shall be. Matthew 13:19. For those days shall be tribulation, such as there hath not been the like from the beginning of the creation which God created, until now, and never shall be. In the King James Version of the Bible, the word tribulation occurs 25 times. Twenty of these are found in the New Testament. Christ is recorded as having used the word on three different occasions, assuming that Matthew 24 and Mark 13 record the same event, and on two of these, Matthew 13:21 and John 16:33 it is clear that he is talking not about a climactic period of destruction and suffering at the end of the age, but about the ordinary sufferings and trials which come to those who follow him. The first of these, Matthew 13:21, has to do with the parable of the sower, in which he says that the one who is sown upon the rocky places hath not root in himself, but endureth for a while, and when tribulation and persecution ariseth because of the word, straightway he stumbleth. In the second passage, John 16:33, he says to the disciples, In the world ye have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. On the other occasions where Jesus spoke of tribulation, Matthew 24, verses 21 and 29, and Mark 13, verse 24, 
The American Standard Version uses the word also in Mark 13:19. The context makes it clear that he has reference to the events that would accompany the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem, events which occurred within the lifetime of that generation. The Apostle Paul uses the word twelve times. In ten of those he was speaking of the sufferings which come upon Christians in the ordinary course of life. These references are Acts 14.22 Romans 5 verse 3 here mentioned twice Romans 8 verse 35 and chapter 12 verse 12 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4 and chapter 2 verse 4 Ephesians 3.13 and 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 4 and 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 4. In the other two places, Romans chapter 2 verse 9 and 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6, he is referring to the fate of the wicked, but in neither of these places is he speaking about a period of time. In one of these he is speaking of the day of wrath and in the other of the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven. In the book of Revelation, the word tribulation occurs five times. In three of these, Revelation 1 verse 9, chapter 2 verse 9, and chapter 2 verse 10, the words are directed to Christians and refer to events in this life. The fourth instance has to do with people who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, chapter 7 verse 14. And the fifth is an instance in which Christ says that he will cast into great tribulation certain ones in the church in Thyatira who commit great sins. In the Old Testament, the word is used four times. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 30, Moses warns the Jews that if they are disobedient, they shall perish and shall be scattered among the nations, but adds that if when they are in tribulation they seek God, he will not forsake them. In this case, the word refers to the sufferings of the Jewish people. In Judges 10, verse 14, the reference is to sufferings of Israel in the time of the judges, sufferings from which they wanted to be delivered. In 1 Samuel 10:19, Samuel refers to past sufferings of the Jews from which they had already been delivered. And in 1 Samuel 26:24, David refers to his own personal sufferings from which he hopes for deliverance. Hence our conclusion must be, Nowhere in the Bible is the word tribulation used in connection with a seven-year period at the end of the age, either while the church is still on the earth, as historic premillennialism holds, or after the church has been removed from the earth, as dispensationalism holds. Instead, it is used to describe, one, the sufferings of Christians during this present age, two, the sufferings inflicted upon worldly rejectors of Christ, and three, the sufferings especially prophesied for the Jewish nation at various times in its past history. The most general use is to describe the sufferings of Christians during this present age. In regard to the four verses commonly cited by premillennialists to prove this doctrine, we make the following observations. In Jeremiah 30 verse 7, in which a day is referred to as great and is described as the time of Jacob's trouble, the word great need not be understood in an intensive sense, but can also be used in the sense of long duration, great in length, and this sense is indicated by the word time, which follows. Old Testament scholars tell us that this prophecy was uttered before the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, 
which occurred in 587 B.C. It seems extremely improbable that Jeremiah at that time could have been referring to a brief period of thirty and one-half years, which even yet is wholly future. What he refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble seems more naturally to refer to that long period of affliction that befell the Jewish people beginning with the destruction of their city Jerusalem, and which indeed continues even through the present time. Following the fall of Jerusalem, the Jews were in captivity in Babylon for seventy years, and then when they were given permission to return to Palestine, only a small minority did so, and they never again had a truly free and prosperous nation. The destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD and the dispersal of the Jewish people throughout the world through the past 19 centuries has been a continuation of the time of Jacob's trouble. That this is the correct interpretation is indicated by the fact that the name Jacob in verse 7 must be interpreted in harmony with the name David in verse 9, where we read, But they shall serve Jehovah their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. We do not understand this to mean that David in person is again to reign in Jerusalem as he did centuries ago, but rather in a higher and typical sense as referring to the Messiah, who was the true son of David and who would be the true ruler, not of the Jewish people as such, but of his own people throughout the world. In harmony with this, a higher and typical meaning is also assigned to the word Jacob, and the time of Jacob's trouble may be thought of as paralleled by what Paul terms the times of the Gentiles, which indeed is a time of trouble for Jacob. In this sense, the day is great, not so much in the intensity of its suffering, but in the duration of its length. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.